this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. So my next guest is Josh Holtzman. He started American Data. And I think you'll find some good stuff in this interview. First of all, you're going to learn about how to value your shares when you merge with another company. Interesting story there from Josh. Why an earnout should never be tied to your employment contract. We'll talk about the definition of personal risk and when you know you've reached your limit. Uh, the surprising power of a great name. I think American Data was a great name, and it really helped Josh punch above his weight. The metrics around how many companies you'll need to pitch to get a term sheet, and one little-known reason companies make strategic acquisitions. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Josh Holtzman. Josh Holtzman, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you so much for having me here today, John. Very much looking forward to speaking with you in the audience. You are in sunny California, so I'm already jealous. Have you always lived in California? I mean, tell me your story. How did you come to American Data? What was the, give me the journey. Yeah, well, I was born and raised in what is normally sunny Southern California. Today, it's a little overcast. I think I've heard something like, uh, we have June gloom, and today's May. They had some other rhyme that I forgot this morning. But anyway, nonetheless, uh, born and raised here, fourth generation entrepreneur. Uh, going way back, our roots go back to the 1930s here as business owners in our family. When I was out of college, worked as a technician for a while. I was a software developer, project manager in the first dot-com boom. Learned a lot of what to do, what not to do. Some of the companies I worked in had gone through millions of dollars in a year and a half, you know, blowing it on Ferraris and these crazy parties. I didn't, I was a witness to that, didn't get experience that and quickly realized when I became a business owner, what not to do. Uh, but at the age of 26, had about four years of professional experience, had gotten married, uh, was renting an apartment. This was prior to having children. Uh, and we, prior to a mortgage, said, you know what, now's the time. My wife had just started work a career as an attorney, and um, she was you know, bringing in some decent dollars to help support us. And I sort of had the, the was that crossroads, what do I do? Do I go and do something that just makes good financial sense, like see if I can finance a piece of property and open up a car wash that could generate some great cash flow or do something I was passionate about, which was really in the technology space. So I evaluated my options and decided the passion play was important to me. I'd go the technology route. I didn't really have a great idea for a product, let's say. So I thought I, I, I was good at software development. I was good at managing projects. So I would start a consulting firm. And this was in 2003 when Small and mid-sized businesses had more or less, most of them had websites that were brochures at this point in time, but very few of them were actually conducting business online. You had the Amazon.coms of the world and the Dells out there that were conducting business and commerce online, but small businesses really weren't. 
And so I thought that could be a niche where I could help small businesses transact business or do customer self-service online via custom software development services. So that's how things started. Uh, I started work out of my apartment, bootstrapped the business, uh, hired an intern um, who actually lived in Toronto, where you're based. Um, And ultimately, over time, grew things. The company grew to uh, about a half dozen employees. And in that process, uh, we had done some work for a client that was using Salesforce.com as their CRM platform. We did some great work for them, and Salesforce got wind of it. Their user conference was coming up, and they asked us, or myself, if I would come and speak about the great success we had with their platform. This is the event called Dreamforce? Yep, this is their user, annual user event called Dreamforce. Yeah, it's yeah. 2000. As, oh, sorry, go ahead. as an aside, this thing is a huge, huge moneymaker. It's unbelievable how, how many people actually go to Dreamforce, how many implementers are there, how much, how the vendors, I mean, this thing's, I mean, Salesforce, it seems like everything they touch turns to gold, but this is an incredible moneymaker for the company. Yes, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. In fact, the, the most astounding part about it to me, um, which is kind of part of the story, which is right place, right time, is 2006, uh, I went to their f- conference, and I think it was their third or fourth year they had it. I walk into the Moscone Center in San Francisco, their big convention center, and there were 5,000 people lined up in chairs looking at Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, speaking and evangelizing and talking about the future. And I walked in, and my jaw dropped, and I said, this is where I need to focus. It's a very focused market. Uh, there's a focused audience. This is what we need to do. We need to turn the company around and focus 100% on Salesforce. So I came back after that, and that we did. We focused the business 100% on Salesforce, providing services around that platform. And just to give you an idea of the growth of their ecosystem, last year was the last year that I went to Dreamforce, 2016. There were about 170,000 people there. So in 11 years, they grew from 5,000 to 170,000 paying uh, participants who left their jobs for a week, flew to San Francisco, and participated. So it, Salesforce is a rocket ship, and uh, I had the opportunity to really kind of latch on and build my services firm around that. So you built it up. So you're, you're half a dozen people when you first kind of glom onto the Salesforce idea. How, how much did you grow the business before you actually decided that you might, you might consider selling it? What was your top line revenue before the, the acquisition? Yeah, so top line revenue ultimately was in the 3 to $4 million range. Um, really kind of what happened was this. I had, was very inspired by Jim Collins, Built to Last, one of the first seminal business books that I read. And I was really inspired around building a company that wasn't like the dot-com experience I had. It was something that was going to be here for a long time. And that's why I named it American Data Company, kind of after IBM. It wasn't really obvious what we did, but it was a name that could withstand the test of time. It is a good name because it just sounds so established. <laughs> it sounds right. like a $100 million company right there out of the gate. It, exactly. And folks would say, oh, gee, you're only 20 people. So we grew to <laughs> about 20 people. Um, I realized in that journey that while well, I built a company to last and to build a nice lifestyle and perhaps exit someday, but that wasn't really the plan, there was an opportunity to exit. Due to the simple laws of supply and demand, our market had become really acquisitive. Salesforce was growing like a rocket ship. And other boutique and international global consulting firms realized they needed to get into the market. And they could either, obviously, organically grow teams or they could grow through acquisition. So 
so we saw competitors that were a little larger than us starting to get swallowed up. And I said, gee, this could be a great opportunity for my family, for our employees, to create some sense of shared ownership and exit the business. However, at the size we were at, I felt that we couldn't command a high multiple. We weren't going to create a great bidding war. That was what I wanted to achieve, get to a point where we had multiple buyers that were interested in us. And I felt if we can get to about $15 million in revenues, um, that would be huge. What was We'd magic about to... $15 million. Why, why was that the, the number in your mind? It's a great number. I think I'd seen some other companies sell around that range, and they did very well in our space. I had done a very good job building my network of other professionals in the space and other CEOs. We sort of talked a lot. And I think it was about 2010 when I came to this realization, uh, maybe 2011. And I wanted to create some sort of vision with shared ownership for our company where we could all grow together and experience the results of a sale. And so I created a bit of a rally cry. Uh, I called it 15 cubed, 15 to the power of three. And we even created little bracelets, those little rubber silicone bracelets for everybody in the office, wore them around to get everybody aligned. 15 cubed stood for, by the year 2015, we want to be at 15 million in revenue at 15% net profit. And I was going to take 15% of the proceeds or any distributions we made and share them amongst the company, the employees, based upon their loyalty and how long they had been with us in the organization. And so it was somewhat arbitrary, but that's what we kind of rallied behind. When did you launch 15 cubed? I want to say we launched that probably in 2011, maybe 2010, 2011. Got it. And so are you doing the math for some people at that point and, and trying to trying to help them understand what what 15% of of the company could mean for them individually in terms of actually money in their genes? We did that exactly. In fact, when we launched this initiative, I brought the whole company together. We had done typically a quarterly or half yearly offsite, sort of a state of the company meeting. And I shared the vision with them. I literally did a very high level educational session on P&L and the economics of running a business and what 15% meant to them and how it was going to be divvied up. And I think that, you know, got folks excited from a monetary perspective, not to mention wanting to be part of something on the ground floor. Was there any sense or any sort of faction of that group that said, okay, yeah, this 15% sounds kind of interesting, but hang on a second, Josh, you're getting 85%. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, uh, there probably were some at that point in time that either thought that or asked that. And I think my perspective is, is that uh, I've taken all the risk here, right, to grow this from the ground up. And um, I do value everybody here. There are times where I don't get a paycheck as a, as a business owner. Uh, I'm the last one that sort of gets paid out here. And I think folks understood that. You know, sometimes when you sort of flip the tables around a little bit and say, listen, if you have the... Uh, desire to go start up your own business, I'm fully supportive. I love entrepreneurship. But typically folks are here because they enjoy being an employee and they don't want to have that risk. And and did you, it sounds like a rehearsed speech and as you say it, is that something that you had to deliver? Like, is that a conversation you had with people or have had people? Uh, in terms of the ownership versus employee role? Yeah, yeah. You know, I've had it a couple times, quite frankly. I've probably heard other entrepreneurial friends of mine and colleagues. Um, I was a member of the Entrepreneurs Organization for about six years, and it was probably just a standard conversation that came up, right, um, in, in business when you're a business owner. Yeah, yeah. I've certainly heard it before, and, and 
And it's one of those tricky, tricky ones. Because as soon as you start doing the math for people and you say, and, and, and you're 15%, you know, your percentage of that could, could mean that, you know, I'm going to write you a check for 50 grand. And they're like, wow, that's a huge amount of money. And then they go, well, wait a minute. If I'm just one guy of 15%, <laughs> that's a big nut that you're going to get, Josh. So it can, it, can, it can start to kind of snowball. So let's go back to the actual uh, sales. So you're at three to four million in revenue. You've got the 15 million cubed, sorry, 15 cubed sort of, you're, you've kind of laid that out there for folks. Maybe take the store to the next level. Uh, yeah. Yeah, keep going. Sure. So lay the vision out there, crystal clear. <laughs> As I tell the story, it was simple. You know, year, two years later, we're still at three, four million in revenues. Uh, we, we did not get the traction we were hoping to, to achieve the results we did or that we had set, set forth. And I think there's a few reasons why in retrospect. One is I had put together a financial plan that essentially if everything went perfect, we arrived there. And as I know now, and we most hopefully business owners know as well, or will realize, typically things don't always go perfectly as perfectly planned, especially when you're in a market like ours, which was highly acquisitive, which was great from the perspective of there were lots of potential buyers out there, but it also meant that the war on talent was extremely high because there was not enough supply of talented people out there that retaining people became a challenge. So we had some turnover, both on the sales side of things as well as on the consulting development side of things that became a challenge. Uh, the other piece is that uh, we weren't capitalized well enough to kind of sustain those ups and downs. So I would take the personal financial hit, meaning borrowing against credit lines, et cetera, to smooth out cash flow, down periods, et cetera. And at some point, uh, you know, that doesn't become fun anymore. The risk becomes higher than the reward or a little bit scary. And everybody's got their own financial risk tolerance. I got to a point where I kind of reached mine. And I'll talk about that in a moment. And the last piece is, you know, I had a, set forth what I thought was a great vision. Uh, but as I shared, I didn't really get the traction towards achieving that vision. And um, we just didn't really have a good operating system to run our company to make sure and be honest with ourselves when we had the right people in the right seats to make changes, et cetera. And I take credit for a lot of that as well as leader in the organization. I just not at the point where I am right now, let's say in my career where I've learned a lot more. So it's all a learning experience and we, 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 we execute on what we know. Makes sense. You were going to talk about risk tolerance. Take, take me through that in your mind. Because yeah, so, your wife, I guess, as well, I'd love to know the overlay of, of, of how your wife interplayed with this because she's got a great job. But man, I know a lot of lawyers and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say they're the most risk, uh, uh, willing to accept a lot of risk in their lives. They tend to be risk averse. And so I'm guessing that that, that laid some pressure onto the, uh, at home as well. Yeah, my wife was very supportive throughout the year. She still is. Uh, very supportive um, in terms of what we do, but uh, you know, not only does she is she an attorney, but she comes from a family of insurance brokers. Oh so God. you can imagine a very risk averse side <laughs> of the family. So it actually balanced me out pretty well, I think. And so I got to a point where I said, you know what, I've reached my financial risk tolerance. Um, the market's still really hot. My, in my mind at least, the value of my company wasn't e increasing; it was decreasing because we had really not grown for a year or two. We had some key people had left. We had brought on some new people and it had just be, started to become very unstable. And so I got to a point where I said, you know what? I'm not, I can't wait till we get to 15 million to sell. It's time to sell now uh, or start exploring that option at least. 
if I, in my idea in my head was I'd still like to have a larger exit. That's not working out as I had planned. So if I can find a like-minded organization, another one of my peers in this space in the Salesforce consulting ecosystem, where I can join forces with them, so this would be a strategic buyer looking for perhaps geographic coverage in the West Coast or some of the vertical expertise that we had. If I could join forces with them, take some chips off the table now, join that organization, and together we could sell and grow and have a secondary exit, that would be great. I still get to experience a broader upside. I reduce my risk. I can sleep better at night. Same thing with my employees. They've got more support that they've been asking for, better capitalized, all the things I sort of mentioned earlier on. So I decided I was going to sell the company, and I talked to a few investment bankers that were in our space or business brokers that were in our space. And after speaking with a couple of them, I surely understood the value of having somebody in that role to increase the value of our business. But for those who I spoke with, the cost that it was going to, to require the investment, um, I didn't feel at the time that I was going to get the value in return. What were maybe they, I was wrong in retrospect. What were they, what, what were the, uh, what were the, the M&A folks saying that would, they, would, uh, they would charge you to sell the business? Yeah, so just to give you an idea. So um, there was one firm I spoke with. You know, I figured at the size we were, we could maybe sell for somewhere between one to one and a half times revenues. If we were a larger scale, we could probably charge uh, uh, selling for a multiple of somewhere between one and a half to three times, but we didn't have that scale. The one firm we spoke to was asking for a minimum, you know, a commitment of two hundred fifty thousand to three hundred thousand dollars to make the sale. Mm. So probably somewhere closer to ten percent, let's just say, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit lower than that. And there was no guarantee on that either. And hmm. they were asking for kind of not only the money up front, but that was sort of the guaranteed amount to run the, the deal. Anyway, I had built, I felt a very good network as I shared earlier of other business owners in the space. Also at Salesforce. They had a gentleman, his job was just to kind of marry up partners. They were very, very big believers in their building an ecosystem. They didn't want to be in the professional services space themselves. So I leveraged him in some ways as kind of a relationship guy to help match me up to folks. Hmm. So between him, connections I had in the entrepreneurs organization with some like-minded companies as well, um, I ran a process myself, which you and others may argue you should never do. I did. Uh, and I spoke to about 11 or so companies, put together a pitch deck myself. Um, of those 11, three or four of them were interested in chatting further. The timing kind of made sense. And ultimately, that sort of boiled down to two. Uh, of those two, uh, we got into you know various negotiations. One of them ended up providing a term sheet. I was hoping we'd get to two. But they backed out last minute, ultimately just decided it wasn't a good cultural fit, which I don't know that I would argue with looking back on it. And ultimately, it's kind of funny, we were acquired by Magnet360, who was another, led by another EO, Entrepreneurs Organization member. <laughs> and the thing that made that so attractive was we had the very similar visions, we had very similar core values in our organizations. And just there was just a level of comfort from day one that we were honest, open people working together for a common goal. And we just sort of fit like a glove. Tell me about the 11 companies that you identified up front. What, what were the screening criteria that you used? Like what sorts of things were you looking for in potential acquirers? Yep. So they were either in the Salesforce consulting space 
or looking to uh, join that space. Um, they were strategic in nature, not looking for cash flow because we didn't have a ton of that to offer at this point in time. What were your margins like at, at this point, like ballpark? Are you are you profitable? Yeah, it's a great percent. Break, break yeah, so you know, from a EBITDA perspective, I'm sorry, from a gross margin perspective, you know, industry average probably about fifty percent. We were probably about there, roughly speaking. But we had invested a lot in infrastructure to scale the business. We had hired a full-time HR person to help us recruit because it was such a competitive space. Um, you know, we moved into some nicer offices to attract better talent, et cetera. You know, our overhead was pretty high. And so I think in the last year or two, we were losing money. Mm. So we were, you know, cash flow negative. We were, we were, you know, negative in terms of uh, our profitability as well on the red. But despite that, because the market was as it was, there was just huge demand for people with our talent and people willing to make sell a premium. So I knew that I needed to act on that quickly. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. So you identified in terms of the 11 companies, Salesforce consulting companies that, that did this basically in your industry, uh, where they weren't necessarily looking to buy a bunch of cash flow. They were strategic in nature. They, um, absolutely. Got absolutely. Got it. Absolutely. Got it. And so you had this pitch deck. I mean, did you go through the natural dance where you send them sort of the anonymous one pager and get them to sign a, a confidentiality agreement? Did you do it that way? Or what was like, what was the mechanics of how you reached out to the 11 to get to the three that, uh, that you had conversations with? Sure. So I'd say of the 11, um, I had a personal relationship with the leaders of at least half, if not more of them. So there's already kind of a level of trust there. And so uh, in those cases, I didn't require a confidentiality agreement unless they required one for that sort of high level. Uh, the other four or five that largely Salesforce had introduced me to through their network, yes, we did sign a mutual NDA. Uh, I shared a, a bit of a high level with them and then ultimately shared a broader deck, which we ran through uh, with each one of those or each one of those that were interested. Got it. And so you get to one term sheet. I mean, walk me through what the terms were and, and, and sort of how you felt about it when you, when you first read the term sheet. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was a short document, right? Page or two, as I imagine most term sheets are, um, with some key bullets, right? The sale price, the valuation, how they arrived at that, cash up front versus, um, uh, versus equity, um, which was the case in our situation. I uh, went through some employment contract terms for myself because I didn't want to keep me around um, as a leader of the West Coast as we became the West Coast branch of the organization. Um, I, I don't recall all the other details, but those were the gist of the, the, the important ones, I guess. And, you know, I, I had retained an attorney at that point in time. It was the same corporate counsel I had used for a couple of years who fortunately was very efficient and helpful and, and knew our business. Uh, we both made a pact, both organizations, that we didn't. Neither of us wanted to drive up tremendous legal fees around this. We wanted to be open and honest and uh, do this as efficiently as possible. Uh, and as a result, we really honored that. Uh, we did get into some, you know, debates back and forth. They weren't. Most of them weren't in high-level principle around the overall valuation. Uh, there were terms, details, such as, for instance, the. Uh, my non-compete, right? It's the term of that after they've purchased the company. Um, some We entered some language around anti-dilution and to, to minimize that. So I'd be treated the same as others, et cetera. Uh, overall, it was a really simple, streamlined negotiation. Uh, there were some key events that were coming up from a timing perspective that we really used as a deadline to try and get this deal done. 
uh, Magnet 360, a parent company, had a board meeting coming up, and they had all the decision makers kind of in play there. We had some key people that were leaving on vacation, and we really wanted to make the announcement before they left. And so we just drove to that. We set up daily meetings between my team and their team where we'd had a list of outstanding items. We'd review documents, quick turnaround, et cetera. And fortunately, knock on wood, it all worked out tremendously well. Who's on your team at this point? Like, who have you led into the fold? Great. That's a great question um, in terms of within our organization, who's in the know. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. So at this point in time, uh, it was really just me and my VP of sales at the time, who was not only a head of sales in our organization, but a very close friend of mine. So he was in the know and he had served as a bit of personal, uh, you know, confidant and, uh, you know, a bit of a psychologist for me as well to be able to nice to have somebody you could vent to. How would he stand uh, to be affected if the sale went through? I mean, did he have shares in the company? Were you incentivizing him in some way? Yeah, he, 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 he did not ultimately more than anybody else. He had these phantom shares that everybody kind of had. So, um, you know, he, he had been there for a while, so he maybe percentage wise, he had more, but, uh, that was really it. It was really, we were close friends and he wanted to make sure that, uh, the business was done right. I was done right. And he was done right. And he knew that we'd take care of each other. Maybe tell me a little bit more about the phantom shares were like, how were they treated in the acquisition? Yeah. So really what happened is, is we had set up a plan in our organization for when we exited and we did exit ultimately. And essentially they just converted over. We determined evaluation. Um, X number of our shares would convert into a certain number of Magnet 360s phantom shares because they had their own phantom program. Um, they just called it a stock option program, but essentially it was a bit of a phantom program. And so we just had a conversion number and everybody's rolled into uh, their number so they didn't lose their shares as we transitioned over. Got it. And so... And so uh, you talked about what the, the, the mechanics were on the term sheet, but what were the numbers that you were looking at in terms of multiples of revenue? What proportion were, were, um, was, was being paid sort of upfront versus being rolled into equity in Magnet 360? <laughs> yeah, so the, the rough valuation, which was somewhat hypothetical at this time because Magnet 360 themselves, right, it's all hypothetical. They hadn't sold the company yet. Nothing's real to a sale happens. Um, was somewhere in the you know one x revenue range, roughly speaking. Uh, I believe it was somewhere between about twenty five to thirty percent um, was uh, cash upfront, and I had some debt that needed to be serviced that didn't go all into my pocket that went to the bank to pay down some credit, et cetera, uh, which helped me sleep better at night for sure. And then the balance became shares in magnet three sixty. and fast forward, about two years after they acquired our organization, uh, we sold the company to a publicly traded IT services firm uh, after I had growing tremendously. And at that point, that all, for the most part, turned to cash. Got it. Okay. So that's super helpful. So how big was Magnet 360 at the time of the, 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 the time they acquired you guys? Yeah, so I uh, don't quote me on this um, exact, but roughly in the say ten to fifteen million dollar range in terms of total revenues. Got it. Let's just say at that point in time. So they were roughly kind of, if I'm doing the math right, somewhere in the kind of four to five times your size ish. Exactly. Exactly. Got it. And then to get together, uh, we did one more acquisition of a firm out in New York, and then uh, in that period of time, we grew the organization to about. I think in the low 30s, 30 million range before we sold it two years later. Uh, I stayed around for another year, and then uh, we had, I think, grown to about 40 million under the new management, at which time it was time for me to, to move on to 
the next adventure of my professional career. Yeah. And so at 40 million in, in revenue, how did the valuation change? Like what was the, what was the multiple of top line revenue that was the, uh, that the uh, strategic acquired uh, used? Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll share this and this is public. Um, uh, the company that acquired us is a publicly traded company. So they, I guess are obligated to disclose this information. They had purchased us for about 50 million at the time of sale. We were, uh, again, about 32. We grew about another eight, you know, the first year after the acquisition. And I believe it was about 35 to 40 of that was a cash payment up front to the organization. And the balance was based upon a two-year earnout um, that was put in place as incentive to grow, hit certain targets, et cetera. And at this point, uh, were you at the helm of the company, or were you still running the LA office when, or the West Coast office when, as part of that two-year earnout, or had you sort of fully exited by the, during the earnout period? Yeah, so I was around for the first year running the LA office, the West Coast, and uh, at the end of 2016, decided it was time to make a transition, so worked on about a quarter plan with management to transition out. Um, but the way the the burnout was structured is it was really kind of a two-year payout based upon performance in one year, we get a certain amount. Based upon performance in year two, we get a certain amount. However, if we were off the numbers in year one, we had the opportunity to make up the delta in year two to kind of play catch up. Got it. That was in place. And was the earnout an all or nothing deal or was it, was it sort of scaled? Great up? question. Yeah, great question. So it was scaled. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but let's just say for argument's sake that, uh, if we were at 80% of our number, we'd still receive something like 10% of the earnout, right? At the, the smallest amounts, anything below that, we get nothing. And then it was a scale up after that. Had, uh, the other thing that had you guys note, uh, so year one, actually, quite frankly, I don't think they finished telling that up yet. So I know there was something coming our way, which is great. Um, I think it things, uh, you know, are, are still in progress at this point in time. Uh, the one thing that I'll mention that I think will be interesting to listeners as well is that, uh, fortunately for me, and I'd advise for this if you can negotiate this in, my earnout um, was not tied to my employment within the organization. It's mm, a great point. Tell me more. It was it was tied to my equity position. So you know, and this is I give a lot of respect to the leadership at Magnet 360. They came to the conclusion that. While I and my team were extremely valuable, they didn't want anybody in their organization that just didn't want to be there. And if I you know, really didn't want to be there, wasn't performing, et cetera, they'd rather have me say, you know what, I'd like to leave and feel like I was obligated to stay around to get some financial payout. So when the earnouts are paid out, my compensation or will just be based upon my percentage equity in the, the joint company, whether I'm there or not. Got it. Got it. Yeah, this is a key point because a lot of people think that an earnout is is basically the same as an employment contract, but it's actually different. An employment contract is a separate document than your earnout, and your earnout is typically tied to your shares uh, as a shareholder, and your employment contract is that of an employee. So great, great. I'm really glad you brought that up as a distinction because I don't think it's something we've ever talked about on the show, but it's a really, it's a really key point and can easily kind of be missed in the process. That's great. And the other piece I'll mention as well is we did, you know, put a severance agreement in there as well. So in the event that uh, they acquired my company, I had a guarantee for, I don't remember the exact duration, but that if something turned south, the company couldn't afford me, they didn't like me, whatever it is, that 
I was guaranteed at least a year of my compensation, my base, not my, my variable, um, in the event they let me go without reason, without cause. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. So just to kind of summarize and make sure I'm getting the math right. So, um, you know, they're valuing your company. The original uh, Magnet 360 acquisition was sort of in the one times top line revenue space. And then to figure out how many shares you got for the purport, the proportion of your deal that you did not take in cash, that you took in shares in Magnet 360, they basically applied the same valuation formula to Magnet 360, although on a bigger base of revenue. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. That's pretty much it. Got it. So like whatever Magnet360 was doing, so 10, 15 million. So we know it's like roughly one times revenue. So you can pretty easily figure out what proportion of Magnet360 you were, uh, you know, what you were entitled to, if you will, uh, because you knew how much revenue they had. Correct. We had a, um, our CFO had done this before. She was very experienced and we had put together a, you know, cap rate sheet um, at the time of our acquisition to kind of know where everything was. And anytime there was any material change in the capital structure of the organization, they'd publish a new cap rate. So everybody was pretty clear as to where they sat from a percentage ownership perspective. And that stayed, when you said the CFO, you're referring to Magnet360 CFO as, as That's the acquisition. Yep. Got it. That's well, what was it like for you as a as a founder, entrepreneur, admittedly like a fourth generation entrepreneur, I mean, I can imagine that that, that might have been somewhat difficult to go through becoming sort of a branch manager in a big honking company. You know, uh, so, you know, when I, I, I grew the company to about 20 employees, when we joined forces, we had become about 100 together. We grew to about 150 to 200 before we sold the company the second time. And, you know, I, I was thrilled. It's funny to say that. I didn't think it would be a long-term thing. I didn't think I would be a you know employee in a corporate company for for the rest of my life. But I had never really done that. Hmm. For the first four years at a college, I had worked in some smaller organizations. And when we finally got acquired, it was a company that had over 17,000 employees. And so it was a much larger organization. So I said, well, first and foremost, when we got acquired by Magnet, I said, this is awesome. I can take a sabbatical from being an entrepreneur and just let my mind rest for a little bit, but be part of a company and a culture that I loved. And I still love to this date. Great organization, great leaders in that organization. I learned a ton and had a lot of fun doing it. When we were then acquired, ultimately, they still let us keep our autonomy, which was great um, as a business unit of that organization. Um, you know, Things started to change um, as they just naturally do when these types of things happen. I had been re-energized after having taken a two-year sabbatical from being an entrepreneur um, and just realized where my passions were. And while I wanted to have the experience of being in a large company and determining maybe this is my path, maybe I can do well here, maybe I'll go up the chain, I realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do. Yeah, and what was it about like what, what was it about yourself or the environment you were in that helped you get to that point. Because you know what? At the end of the day, everybody listening to this show will one day, I shouldn't say everybody, but the vast majority of listeners will sell their business and be forced into some management contract, earn out, whatever, a year, two, three, five years, whatever the length of time is. But having to stay on uh, as an employee, middle manager in a big company is just the reality, right? Um, and 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 how do you, how would you counsel another entrepreneur about to go and 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 step from entrepreneur into 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 manager? What what advice would you give them? What experiences would you share? 
Yeah, well, I'd say first and foremost, going back to a statement I made earlier, if you can structure something where your employment is not required in the first place, that alleviates that. Sure. And I was really lucky because I was in a position where I didn't have to stay there. I stayed because I really wanted to stay there. I liked the people. I loved my team. We had a sense of you know joint ownership together in terms of what we were growing. Um, so if you can do that first and foremost, that's great. Uh, if you're you know don't have the obligation, if you've got an obligation to stay there. Um, for a period of time in order to receive some sort of uh, monetary sum, et cetera, then that's a different story. Uh, and at that point, you just need to weigh the balance of the two of those things, which is, okay, great. If I leave, what am I leaving on the table versus what am I doing staying here? And that's something you should go into you know, full well knowing um, at the time of the sale. Uh, in fact, when I go back to the sale and started thinking about really what would I have done differently or what were some of the challenging negotiating points and the one that was probably most difficult for me to stomach was just my, uh, becoming an employee, my compensation. As a business owner, I was used to living a certain lifestyle and having a certain cash flow and, and being, having certain tax treatment and a certain compensation. And I was an employee as a company that had drastically gone down. However, the way I justified that was within 18 to 24 months, I felt confident that the business was going to sell and there'd be a large sum of money coming on the back end. And at that point in time, I could choose to leave and do something different. Does he ever do the calculation to figure out, okay, if I, to support the lifestyle I've created for myself as the CEO of American data company, you know, like when you take into consideration, like the cars and the rentals and the vacations that all somehow find their way onto the, 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 the business payroll or the business profit and loss statement. Did you ever do the math to say, if I was to try to recreate this lifestyle, I'd have to make like three times the amount of revenue, whatever it was, two X or three X. I, I did go through that exercise. Oh, cool. uh, you know, I, I don't remember what the exact calculations were, but I absolutely did to make sure I kind of understood where. Now, there's some positives to being an employee as well in of terms course, of tax yes. treatment. You know, in terms of the the business is paying half of your employment taxes versus the company that you also own, et cetera. So I made it work where I was comfortable. You know, I, I let's just say downgraded my car. You know, ultimately <laughs> um, when I when I joined, just because it was the right thing to do at the time. But um, what were you the good thing before? is that. I was driving a I mean, nothing crazy, but it was an Audi A7, or A7, which I loved, one of my favorite cars. That's pretty high end. And, uh, yeah, when I decided to uh, sell that, I went to a uh, BMW i3 uh, electric small little four door, which was just you know no gas, yeah. uh, very inexpensive lease payment, and it's it's been fun. But uh, the, the reality of it is, is that I was pretty conservative when it came to running stuff through the business as well, as you mentioned, you know throwing stuff on the books. So. Everybody kind of runs their businesses in different ways. Yeah. So don't IRS, don't go after Josh. He's totally clean. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Listen, if you had it to do over again, what might you do differently? Like, is there one kind of big learning here that if you had an EO form and they said, Josh, give me like, give me the one big nugget I should do differently. What would you, what would you tell them? So I think it's less about the actual sale itself that went relatively smoothly. It was everything leading up to the sale. And I shared a few of those nuggets earlier. One was I would have been better capitalized, um, you know, probably raised some money, you know, if I did it again. And I'll give you an example as to how this could turn out differently. There are at least two, com three companies, I should say, that were in our space that were started around the time I founded my company. And in some cases, even after that raised a boatload of money from uh, VC or private equity. Uh, and consolidated a number of companies or rapidly grew, had room to make mistakes, got some great advisors on their side, 
um, and also have the ability to do things like proactively grow their bench without having to grow that by simply reinvesting profits. And those companies in the same span, more or less that I grew my company and exited, grew their revenues to anywhere from two to 300 million in revenues and exited anywhere from two to 500 million as a sale. And in many cases, uh, at least one case I know, the co-founders of that company retained, had, had raised over 100 million in funding and had retained still 50% ownership selling at a half a billion dollars. So just different trajectory. So I probably would have done that differently knowing what I know now and having some more experience. And the second piece is really just having a better system to run my organization. When I was at Magnet 360, Magnet had introduced me to a operating system called the Entrepreneurial Operating System or EOS, which is a simple set of tools and disciplines to help companies get aligned on vision, get traction towards those vision, adding discipline, accountability, et cetera, and ultimately just creating healthier, more open, honest, cohesive teams. And while I think at American Data Company, I did a pretty decent job setting the vision, I didn't have the tools in place to hold people accountable and make the adjustments when I needed to make the adjustments and kind of know what was coming. And that was a big missing piece. So those are the two things I'd say I'd probably do differently if I went back. And that may have been, meant that I did sell the company at $15 million or maybe even more, which would have been a totally different story. Not that I'm complaining it's been a bad story. It's been a great ride. I'm very fortunate. It just would have been a different story. Well, I appreciate you sharing it with us, Josh. Um, where's the best pe uh, place for people to find you? Are, are you sort of taking emails on, on LinkedIn or what's the best place for people to find you on? Yeah, that's great. And, and I'm here helping organizations to get what they want from their businesses. What I'm doing now is coaching, doing what I'm passionate about, which is helping other organizations use EOS to get what they want from their organizations, whatever it might be, growth or just sleeping better at night. And I can be reached. Uh, you can check out my website, www.shootcxo.com or josh at shootcxo.com. Uh, and on LinkedIn, I've been publishing articles about my journey, and I'll continue to do so. So um, be happy to share my story. Like I said, I'm a fourth-generation entrepreneur. I'm a teacher. I love to help and give back. And to the extent I can help others get what they want out of their business, I'm here to help. Thanks for joining us, Josh. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L -L